Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Oh, hi, everybody. Welcome back to We've Got Mail. (laughs) This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, for the purposes of this uh, this particular podcast, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. You needn't, but you may. Hey, I say if the opportunity arises, you take it. Okay. Uh, in any I, case, it, it's, it's, like, it's like if you met, like, Dwayne Johnson. Uh-huh. And you were like, oh, hi, Mr. Johnson. I really enjoyed your work in the Jungle Cruise. And Dwayne Johnson was like, please, call me The Rock. You call I, I him the Rock, right? I don't think he he asks for that anymore. I'm just saying, if he let you specifically do it, okay, you'd take it, right? Okay, like oh, uh, um, it's like oh, hi, Mr. Duvall, Robert Duvall, esteemed uh, actor, uh, big big fan of your work. Uh, how are you doing this evening, Mr. Duvall? And then Robert Duvall says, "Please call me the Cannon." <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir, Mister Duvall. Please call me the cannon. Yeah, like I'm just saying, oh, if you take uh, the, opp- you have the opportunity arises, mm. you take it. Anyway, this is our uh, letters podcast here at Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, you, our listeners write in. You ask us questions. You uh, talk about something we discussed on previous podcasts. We, anything you want, really. The floor is yours. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, we also have a snail mail account, uh, a snail mail a box, actually a PO box, a post. Office box. You can get those. You just have to ask. <laughs> you go down they're to your local giving them away office. in exchange for money. No, I was about to say, they're not giving them away. We're paying for <laughs> in it. In exchange for money. Uh, but yeah, write, in, write us an actual physical letter. Write us an, an, an epistle. Uh, write, it, write it on a, a deer skin and roll it up and have it sent our way. Uh, to the uh, Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. We'll unroll the deer skin and read it on the air. Uh, but we don't like to dilly-dally in this podcast. We like to just yield the floor as quickly as we can. Whitney, hmm. tell us about our first email. All right, here's a letter from Nick. Hi, Nick. Hey, Nick. Uh, hey, guys. Hi. Uh, I've been thinking about a movie I saw a few years ago called Border Town. Mm. It was released in 1935 and starred Paul Mooney and Betty Davis. Mm. The movie is lousy with issues. Uh, lousy, that is, in full of it. Yeah. Uh, the pace is slow and the plot is dead simple and pretty uninteresting. And Paul Mooney is, in true Paul Mooney fashion, plays a person of color for some reason. This character is Mexican. Oh, God. Paul Mooney played a lot of... Uh, not, 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 not white a lot. actor played yeah. a lot of non-white characters. Yeah. Um... Uh, now the reason I bring this up a uh, pretty bad movie is that it has one of my favorite sequences in cinema history that I've seen, of course. Specifically, Betty Davis' character commits my favorite movie murder, Ooh. and the reason it's my favorite is that it takes absolutely no effort on her part. Uh, spoilers, but she kills her husband, played by Eugene Pallet, by Ooh, his... Oh, ah. why, why are you killing me? Where's my breakfast? Where's my breakfast? Ah. 
That's how Eugene Pallet talked when I were talking about. Eugene, where's my breakfast, Pallet? By asphyxiating him in their garage, she just driven them home after a night out where he got so drunk that he passed out in the back seat. She drives into the garage, which has a garage door that is operated by a newfangled motion sensor. She's about to turn the car off when she realizes her opportunity. She simply leaves the car on and walks out of the garage to go to the front door while the motion sensor helpfully finishes the job. Ah. Uh, She would have burned more calories if she decided not to murder him. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fun to watch Betty Davis make eyes at a, uh, at the key in the ignition uh, and at the motion sensor, hatching a murder plot where the murder is completely passive. The rest of this film is completely a snooze, and yet I couldn't recommend it highly enough because of this single sequence. Uh, do you guys have any similar movies in your mental libraries? Uh, I'm taking hmm. movies that are bad or even worse, yet they contain an element that you love so much that you still recommend the film as a whole, oh. just so people can witness a single saving grace. Thanks for reading, Nick. That's an interesting question. Hmm. My first thought was a movie that I actually don't recommend uh, as a whole, hmm. just because I think its overall attitudes are just kind of toxic in general, yeah. and I know I'm, some people disagree with me on this, a lot of people do, but um, and that's Forrest Gump. Okay. Uh, when I was, uh, I guess it was an early teenager when Forrest Gump came out, and um, it was a huge hit. Gigantic mm. smash success, sold a ton of soundtracks, won a bunch of Oscars. Uh, incredibly uh, uh, significant as a visual effects film. Mm. Um, but as a movie, it's really quite gross, actually. And it's mm. basically a story of how it's Forrest Gump follows every, every conservative piece of advice he could possibly be given. Go to mm. Vietnam. Start a business. Yeah. Listen to everything your teacher said. Like, basically, just does everything the way it's white, white conservative America, yeah. and you know, yeah. sort of sold those lessons. And he's rewarded for it endlessly. And then, meanwhile, his best friend is the girl he loves is horrifically abused. And uh, you know, for, for tr- the, from the crime of having sexual agency, by the way, no, no, like from from just from childhood, and then well, later true, on, yeah. and then later on, when she tr- when she grows up, she tries to. Be an artist. She she becomes a hippie. She cares about things and politics, and she actually uh, tries to get involved in different movements. Uh, and uh, she is horrifically tortured for that, and ultimately punished in a very judgmental fashion. Um, I don't care for it. However, mm-hmm. Lieutenant Dan is a great character. <laughs> I love Lieutenant Dan. Lieutenant Dan could have a whole movie. Mm. The scene where Lieutenant Dan, the guy character played by Gary Sinise, who uh, came from a long line of uh, men who had been killed in world war in, in wars, mm. like his father died in a war, his grandfather died in a war, and he figured he was going to die in Vietnam heroically, and then uh, Forrest saves him. Mm. Uh, but he didn't and, want and to it, be. And he resents that. And he resents that, and now he's lost his legs, and he resents that all the more. Uh, that he has to live, and he has to live in a state of being that he doesn't like, and it takes a long time for the film for him to come around to that. I actually think it's really quite beautifully handled. But the uh, the scene when they're in the hospital, and Lieutenant Dan pulls Forrest down to the floor and says, "You should have left me to die," is such an overpoweringly good bit of acting by Gary Sinise mm-hmm. that it almost makes you recommend the whole movie. Because that scene gets me... I don't care how annoyed I am at the rest of the movie. That scene mm. gets me every fucking time. Yeah. He's so damn good yeah, in that movie. Yeah. Um, trying to think of other ones, examples. Yeah, they're like um, some films that have like a spectacular dance sequence. Oh, sure. Or, um, I mean, I'll give, a lot of, I'll give a lot of slack if you have a good dance sequence. I know. Uh, it, it's... 
because it, it's a film directed by Brian Singer and stars Kevin Spacey, uh, it's mm. not really watched or even talked about much anymore. But uh, in the ni- mid '90s, a film uh, came out called The Usual Suspects. Oh, here you go. Uh, which I, I feel like is its ending. Like the, yeah, because the, the, the ending is the whole, whole reason for the film to yeah, exist. The, the, yeah, the film leads up to this like really spectacular twist ending, and yeah. you, you kind of. The ending is so spectacular, you kind of forget that the rest of the movie is a little bit of a slog. Yeah. Like, there, it's a little bit confusing. The plot doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, you the, understand the plot, the plot doesn't it, make sense by, def- by on I, purpose. I understand, yeah, but, you know, it's yeah. that's not a lot of fun to watch when you're in the middle of it, is it? <laughs> My uh, dad hated so, that. So you get to that ending, and you're like, wow, what a great film. Well, it's kind of an average film, but it has an excellent ending. Uh, Sometimes that's all you need. You leave them yeah. with a good ending, and you forgive a lot. Yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. that's um, uh, it's an interesting point. That, that's how I feel about a lot of Alexander Payne movies. Mm, they, uh, they, he seals the deal at the end. Like, like in the last... Yeah, the, it's like they're, yeah. they're a little sloppy. You're wondering how, where he's going with this. They kind of meander. There's a lot of like ancillary stuff that doesn't seem like it's really necessary. And then in that last scene, yeah, he'll, he'll slam your fingers in the emotional door. And he'll be crying and crying <laughs> and crying. Uh, it happened with me uh, with The Descendants. It happened with me mm. with About Schmidt real hard. Um, it happened with me with... Uh, um, what's the Bruce Dern one? Arkansas? Uh, the Bruce, uh, Nebraska, Nebraska, Nebraska. Yeah, that's one of it. those states. <laughs> it was named, after, <laughs> named after one of the fifty states. One of those one. fucking states. <laughs> you know the one. Yeah, Nebraska. I thought like had a good closing mm. scene. So those are good films um, that have like good uh, endings. Here, here's a here's a movie I I recommend because I see what someone tried to do, mm. and I'm with you. Uh, and that's Fantastic Four: Rise of the Silver Surfer. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of in the minority on this one, but stick with me. I, I have a point. I, I defend it to a degree. Uh, um, don't, don't love it, but I defend the it. The Tim Starry Fantastic Four movies uh, were frustratingly unambitious. The Fantastic Four was a comic book that was rather defined by... For, for hundreds of issues, the Fantastic Four had on the cover of the comic the world's greatest comic magazine yes. on the cover. And nobody argued it because for at least a hundred issues, they were right. The first 100 issues of Fantastic Four ish, the ones that Stanley and Jack Kirby did are groundbreaking, trailblazing, incredible science fiction. Anything can happen. Completely changed the way comic book storytelling uh, uh, exists to this day. When Tim Story did the first live action movie that made it to theaters, not kind of the Corman version, um, he just made it kind of like a family like romp. It's more, it's more it was, like a sitcom. It was, it was more about or... like hanging out with your family and you all got superpowers, which is a take, but it's kind of the, they, something they, you, you didn't need the Fantastic Four to do that. The Fantastic Four is so many more opportunities. So when, well, they when, didn't they didn't do superhero stuff, but I've read some Fantastic Four comics and they don't. Yeah, and I get it. That's part of the Fantastic yeah. Four, but it's not the selling point. I think it's the, I think it's. I think it's uh, selling them short right. to make it. It would be like, um, you know, like in the beginning of almost every episode of the 1960s Batman, it's just Bruce Wayne and uh, Dick Grayson hanging out at Wayne yeah. Manor studying. You know, like, mm. oh, we're doing our bird calls. Well, that's part of Batman. I don't want that to be the whole film. <laughs> I, I suppose not. And that's how I feel about the, the first century Fantastic Four. I feel like it kind of whips and I feel like it really doesn't know what to do with Doctor Doom. The second Fantastic Four movie, also known by Tim Story, I feel tries to right the ship in a lot of ways. First off, that whole like chase around the world between the human torch and the silver surfer, that's cool. That's yeah, cool. That's just cool. They're flying around the whole yeah, world. That's, that's neat. I'm gonna just, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pretend that's it's not like neat. A, a fireman and a the t- yeah. tinfoil dude. And I around. also appreciate that the screenwriters did everything they could to fix Doctor Doom. 
Like, oh, he was like trapped in a statue in Latveria. Well, shit, that's terrible. How do we get him out of that? Okay, Silver Surfer flies by him, and then he tries to steal some power from the Silver Surfer, and now, boom, he's exactly the Doctor Doom in the comics now. <laughs> like, he's exactly that guy! Yeah, they, like, they, that's what I wanted. Just hmm. get, fix it quickly and then move on. And there are bits in that movie that are really, really good, and I'll say, I'll also say this again, Chris Evans and Michael Chiklis, MVPs. They're very good in that film. Okay, um... Ian Griffith is fine too. I think Jessica. He's fine. Al- I just feel like I, th- I think Jessica Alba wasn't given a lot of like character to work no. with. Like they, they kind of gave that character short shrift. So no, she, it's a, she did what she could. But, it's a trap know. with Sue Storm. It's like so many people will just underwrite that character. They don't yeah. get her at all. I love Fantastic Four. I'm waiting for a good movie. One of these days we'll get a good movie, but for now, yeah, I'm making the. I'll make the most of Rise of the Silver Surfer. <laughs> I'll make the most of it. Yeah. I'll I'll give it a pass. Oh gosh. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of others, like other good, like yeah. like a, a one, oh, like uh, one, the, one like good there's, sequence. There's, uh, there's one really awesome car chase in that Chow Yun Fat Mark Wahlberg movie, The Corrupter. Oh, I saw that. The movie is yeah. completely forgettable, but there's this one really badass car chase in it mm. where just in order to like get away from the cops and stuff the criminals just start shooting everybody mm. like as they drive by and shit and like holy shit like <laughs> damn it's like really fucked up it's great yeah nothing's coming to me right now just because okay. I'm tired my brain is it's okay if Winnie thinks but, uh, of anything yeah, I'll, later I'll, on I'll he'll, 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 he'll pop it back but hopefully he gives a few I'll examples. bring I'll definitely bring it up um, yeah uh, next letter? Yeah, let's do it. Here's a letter from L.P. Gartner. Hello, L.P. Gartner. Hi. Um, hello, gents. Uh, I have a question to pose for you both. I'm currently in the midst of writing an essay that discusses the moral or ethical debate regarding what I like to call the Uncanny Valley Conundrum. Mm. Uh, for those who don't quite know what I'm talking about, the Uncanny Valley Conundrum refers to either the animating and or digital uh, de-aging of actors, a trend that has uh, populated plenty of recent blockbuster fare, i.e. Ghostbusters Afterlife with Harold Ramis, mm. and I find it slightly more ethical to de-age an actor who's still alive because then they can at least provide consent. However, the act of reimagining actors for a posthumous performance, i.e. Carrie Fisher in Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, uh, feels very unethical and, dare I say, a bit ghoulish. I would love to hear your thoughts on this as you both... as you're both some of my favorite voices in film criticism, I recently began uploading frequent pieces of media criticism to my website, uh, be it reviews, capsules, articles, etc. And I would be thrilled if you gave it a look or a shout out. LP Gartner, that's L P G A E R T N E R dot com, whenever you get some spare time. Uh, sincerely yours, LP Gartner. Thank you for that. And um, that's a great question, and that's something we're we're starting to wrestle with more and more. Um, well, as, as the technology advances, yeah. I, re- I remember the first time. Uh, this was like a thing where they used digital technology to resurrect a dead actor. And it was a film called Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Well, and to be fair, Uh, what they did with that one was they took a little bit of footage and then they like, like put like some like video distortion on it. It wasn't like they actually animated... The point is they Lawrence Olivier they that. cast Lawrence Olivier to play a part yeah. that he was dead for. Agreed. Uh, he yeah. he didn't know that this movie was going to be made. He didn't mm. consent to it. And I know what happens with a lot of it. Like when uh, uh, Peter Cushing was in uh, one of the Star Wars movies, mm-hmm. they just digitally recreated him mm. and animated a, a lifelike version of him. Right. And I believe they I believe they did re- ask his estate. Well, that's the thing. They only need permission from the estate. They mm-hmm. don't need permission from the actor. Exactly. And permission from the estate usually means is just a big old check. Yeah, and that's uh, the thing. So if a yeah. big rich company can afford to uh, pay a, a dead actor's family mm-hmm. enough money, uh, yeah, and you know they're eventually going to be open to the idea, then that's what we're looking at here: is that yeah. these actors are going to be recreated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's there's a movie out there called The Congress. 
with Robin Wright, which is about that very thing. It's about an, an actress who uh, sells her likeness and eventually, like, and we get to see, like, centuries after she's dead, how her likeness is still being used in, like, sort of pop media. Oh, that's intriguing. I yeah. didn't really know, know that was up with that. I didn't know that was what that was about. Yeah. And there's... The the balance here is, uh, no, a lot of these actors didn't con- uh, consent mm-hmm. to have their likeness being used in movies years after yeah. their deaths. Uh, they couldn't even have imagined that. Yeah, how could uh, you possibly anticipate that? Yeah, at the same time, at what point do we worry about sort of the consent of the actor and at what point do they become sort of a public figure painting a you know painting a picture of william shakespeare is that a violation of him because he didn't consent yeah. to sit for that portrait if you uh, there's uh, a, there's one uh, looney tune i recall mm-hmm. with pepe Le Pew where the stink waves from the skunk are going through like a museum and at one point the mona lisa says i don't know but i i'll tell you one thing it's not easy keeping the smile mm-hmm. it's like did the person who who stood for that, who, who like, yeah, does the rational Mona Lisa, like, would she, would she be okay painting. with that? Yeah. I don't know. Then that's a good point, that there is a point where you become part of history. Mm. Um, however, I would argue that that, that takes a while. And it's I think, a, it's, and notice it, we're talking about the Mona Lisa and Shakespeare, yeah. uh, you know, people who are centuries old. Well, we're also talking about, in that particular instance, we're talking about a work of art that they were in being repurposed by other artists. And I think that's not entirely the same conversation because you agreed to be part of that work of art. Yeah. So you gave consent to be work of that part, part of that work of art, and then eventually that work of art becomes in public domain. I think mm. that's, I think that's arguably okay. But what we're talking about here is a technology that a lot of times people use to de-age. And again, as long as there's consent, I don't care if Michael Douglas looks young in an Ant-Man movie. I don't care. You'd use makeup to de-age him anyway, so who cares? That's irrelevant. They'd use makeup, they'd cast another actor. Um, The technology still isn't perfect, so it's really distracting. I've seen it work better than others a few times where I I was fooled. the, The Irishman... The Irishman doesn't look quite right. Yeah, in no. some shots. Um, yeah, when they had the young uh, Robert Downey Jr. in one of the uh, one of the was, Avengers movies, it was, um, um, whichever one it was, but Civil the, War. They they like because they we know what Robert Downey Jr. looks like thirty years ago. They yeah. just sort of used that as reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, then they got away so, with it. So that one looked okay. But again, that's what we're talking about is when the actors are clearly giving their consent. Mm. When the actors can't give their consent. Um, and the the expression that was used in the in the email is something a word I've used before, mm. uh, ghoulish. We are talking about essentially digging up the dead. Yeah, they're dead. They have no consent over what's being done with their body, with their likeness, and then we put them on screen as though we assume they would be okay with that. And even if their estate is fine with that. We don't know that their estate is doing what that person would have wanted. Mm. They're doing what the estate is comfortable with. And while arguably that puts you legally in the clear, does it put you ethically or morally in the clear? That's a conversation. That's not cut and dry. Mm. We, you can have that conversation from both angles. It's a definite debate we can have. It's not clear cut. Yeah. And I know that there are performers now who are actually thinking about this and putting this in their last will and testament yeah. about how comfortable they are with this, how uncomfortable they are with this. I know um, uh, Robin Williams uh, yeah. has has had one of those in his will Yeah, that uh, it's like se- like 75 years after he dies, yeah. uh, they can start using his voice for like extra yeah. commercial purposes. And that's that's the line he has yeah. crossed. That's a perfectly reasonable thing. He yeah. should be able to decide what that is. Uh, um, and I, I know a lot of what we're talking about here uh, does come back to... Uh, an actual legal matter. Yeah, ethical if, treatment of the dead. Uh, ethical treatment of the dead, 
but what? Uh, where's the line? You know, we're talking yeah. about Shakespeare and the Mona Lisa. Yeah, there's got to be a line somewhere. Uh, Carrie Fisher and Peter Cushing, who well, were who died relatively recently. Yeah, uh, in the grand scheme of things, anyway. And, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, th- I think ago, I think when we're talking about what's ethical, are we really just talking about where the public domain law- laws are? Well, when legal- does, when if when Star Wars enters the public domain, yeah. That'll never happen. Uh, well, I mean, we're, we're, <laughs> Disney's never going to let that shit happen. Uh, D- Disney has been changing public domain laws yeah. so they can hang on to, to Mickey Mouse. Uh, mm. But uh, if if eventually it's going to happen, oh yeah, centuries may pass, but yeah. it'll happen. <laughs> uh, is it then ethical to start recreating likenesses of Peter Cushing in the now super advanced computer technology right. we're going to have at the time? Uh, and are we concerned with what his state his estate is concerned with once like? several generations have passed. Well, it's also important to remember that when we have a conversation like this, there are different conversations to be had in different contexts. Mm-hmm. There's a movie that came out last year. Not an amazing movie, but it was okay. It's called Worth. It starred Michael Keaton, and he played a guy whose responsibility it was after 9-11 mm-hmm. to figure out a fair well, amount a of financial com- fund, yeah. financial compensation for everyone who died in 9-11. A nearly impossible job. Uh-huh. Uh the movie begins with him having, he's teaching a class, a legal class, mm-hmm. in which he says, what is life worth? Now, philosophically, theologically, that's a gigantic question. And maybe it's impossible. Maybe life is just absolutely priceless. Legally, there's a number. Yeah. And so when we talk about this idea of like, where's the line? And if you want to say it's, it's when they go into public domain, that's a legal question. Yeah. And that, that's a question that needs to be asked at some point. My, my point but, is yeah. that the legal question and the ethical question are more tightly knitted together than we maybe would like to acknowledge. Perhaps. I think that I think there's slightly different conversations, but mm. obviously there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. Um, my overall take is I think these things can be done tastefully. And untastefully. And I'll give you... you did you finally see Ghostbusters Afterlife? I don't think I, you'd seen it when, when, I, for, when I, I did. I saw it. You saw it after I did. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. There's an opening scene in Ghostbusters Afterlife where the mm. character Harold Ramis plays, Egon Spangler, mm. um, is clearly played by another actor and you just don't see his face. Yeah, they shoot him from behind. Yeah. They shoot like his hands, that I sort don't, of thing. I thought that was tastefully done, actually. Mm. I thought it was clearly him, but it's also not pretending that that's Harold Ramis. We're continuing the story as best we can with that character, even though the actor is dead, mm-hmm. and we lead to an organic state, which is the actor is no longer with us, and so yeah, now well. the character isn't either. And I thought, all things considered, that was a reasonable way to handle it. At the end of the movie, we get full-on, this is, it's been out for a while, mm. we get full-on CGI Harold Ramis looking right into the camera. Yeah. That crossed the line for me. I thought that was, at the very least, I thought it was in poor taste. I I think there is uh, a big part of the ethical question is Mm -hmm. what what purpose are they serving in their resurrection? Yeah. Uh, If it's to... If you're going to dig up my corpse, please do it for a reason. Yeah. Don't just do it because you... If they're resurrecting Harold Ramis because they want to do uh, this already pretty tasteless version of Ghostbusters where mm-hmm. everything is just sort of this nostalgia fest yeah. and we're just calling back to all of these elements. There, there was even a callback to something I don't remember from Ghostbusters. Oh, it was a deleted scene. Or, um, oh, where he puts the chocolate bar in his pocket? Oh, the chocolate bar. No, I was talking about like the scene at the end with um, Janine where they oh. like had like a memento. Oh, I, yeah, I don't... Yeah. Did you not no. save for the credits? I think I left, yeah. Okay, there's a, there's a post-credit it. scene where they treat something like it's really, really important. It was a deleted scene. It wasn't even in the original oh, God. film. Uh, but yeah, there's a scene yeah. where um, uh, 
Egon's granddaughter is going through his closet and finds a chocolate bar in his pocket. And I didn't remember the scene from Ghostbusters where somebody put a chocolate bar in his pocket. Uh. I guess he just left it there for decades. Uh, (laughs) But uh, this whole thing, this whole thing is a pretty tasteless affair as is. Agreed. And having Harold Ramis be resurrected for the final scene of that movie Mm -hmm. is just makes it all the more tasteless. It's this shameless thing that we're doing to sort of try to manipulate you in a really gross sort of way. And, and, s- and I think the yeah. same can be said of, you know, doing it for Carrie Fisher, doing yeah. it for Peter Cushing. They're not being resurrected as some sort of way of commenting on their legacy mm. as actors or performers like or as people. As a tribute, per as se. A tri- yeah. yeah. Um, they're doing it to serve this gigantic corporate entertainment. They're, they're doing it to perpetuate a franchise. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I'm having trouble with what they're doing right now in Star Wars. And they mm. started with Peter Cushing. They moved on to do it with Carrie Fisher twice, uh, once to de-age her in Rogue One, and once to de-age her and have her like do some real acting. And well, they, uh, they didn't even de-age her. They, that was a, a, cre- a c- complete creation of whole. Well, my, well, my point is it was still yeah. it still wasn't like Carrie Fisher as she was. My point is that they they it was the younger version of Carrie Fisher that they created. Um, but I digress. Um, and now what we're seeing in uh, uh, Boba Fett and uh, the Mandalorian is that we're seeing a de-aged version of Luke Skywalker. As a character on the show. Now, again, if Mark Hamill consents to this, more power to him. Well, from but, what I understand, it was not Mark Hamill, but a different actor who okay. looks a lot like Mark Hamill here, with here, a de Here's, here's okay, I wasn't, I didn't want to get into the weeds of this. If Mark Hamill consented to have his likeness used this way, more power mm. to Mark Hamill. But what they okay. actually did was they had a stand-in, they used CG to make the guy who already looks a little bit like him to look entirely like him. And then now that he's given like a full-on like interactive vocal performance in Boba Fett, uh, rather than just have like Mark Hamill give the performance, and yeah, Mark Hamill sounds different now, but you could like tweak mm. him and like de-age him. Uh, what he they did a was voice actor. They He's did. A they, voice actor. they created an AI program based off of earlier performances mm. of Mark Hamill, including like books yeah, on tape he yeah, did, yeah. in order to determine what he probably would have given as his performance. Mm. And that per- I think is fucked up. Well, because that's not a performance. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's that's a, that's, that's a prediction, and it also yeah. means you will never get anything extemporaneous. You will never get that spark of inspiration. It's always based off something they've already done. Yeah. That is a that is the, a from a narrative and artistic perspective. That's a crap direction to go in, well, but, but it's, B, I, I worry that what they're doing is they're by not by never recasting any of these people mm-hmm. to perpetuate the franchise. They're creating slowly, just easing us into a situation where all of the characters can be CGI recreations of people who are no longer dead, mm-hmm. and they no longer need to run anything by anybody, and they can just keep this thing going as an algorithm yeah, rather than yeah. an actual entity. Um, and that I, I find uh, ugly, and I don't. Doubt for one second that Disney would be happy to do it. I've I've read science fiction stories about this premise. Yeah. Uh, the, the, one of uh, I, I heard a science fiction uh, radio show where um, advertising had taken over, and yeah. it was just sort of building upon itself. It was being created like instantly and automatically. Yeah, and uh, it was like ruining people's self esteem, and that was the greatest way to sell things. Yeah, and it was all being done like in this grotesque automated sort of fashion. Yeah. That, that's exactly what we're looking at now. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, this idea that uh, th- there's a line of dialogue from uh, Robert Altman's The Player mm. that I think it's really fascinating that uh, you found a way 
to cut the screenwriter out of the filmmaking process. Yeah. All we need to do is get rid of these pesky directors and ask actors, and I think you've got something. Yeah, there's a whole um, long sequence about, like, basically what we don't need writers. It's anymore. like, we don't need writers. Just, like, pick up a newspaper, and somebody does, yeah. and they read a headline, and he says, okay, and here's the story. That's There's the movie, right? Yeah. Out of the, just so out of the need... headline. We don't even need to read the yeah. story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, the Tim Robbins character says, well, how ingenious of you. We don't need any people, do we? Yeah. That's the goal. Yeah. That's the goal of these things. Uh, yeah. And... Not everyone the, agrees is, on that, but I think there's well, definitely a mentality. There are definitely people who would be fine with it. This is the reason why Rogue One, the film Rogue One, infuriated me. I was angry watching that movie because I understood at that moment that this is not... Uh, the studio has no interest in expanding Star Wars at all. Mm-hmm. They're just going to be orbiting around the exact same moon keep uh, over and over keep again. Keep filling and just, in the gaps. There's this little tiny space and they're just going to keep on cramming more and more stuff into it. That's what they're doing right now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's like, oh, great. Now there's a whole series devoted to a character you've seen before. Mm-hmm. Boba Fett, is it expanding? No, it's just the character you like. Mm, pretty much. I, a few, I, few I little like, things here and there, but mm, mostly... The, I, I thought that that's what bad. the Mandalorian was supposed to do, but then they did Boba Fett anyway, so it's like, mm-hmm. TF. Uh, and then Boba Fett turned into the Mandalorian for like the last three episodes anyway. Uh, yeah, didn't the Mandalorian the, show up? The Mandalorian Fett, became the yeah? protagonist for like two and like two or three episodes oh in a row. God. Yeah, uh, so yeah, they're, they're just clearly conf- like trying to conflate the two in this weird sort of way. It is weird. Uh, so this idea that we're going to take everything that's sold in the past and mm-hmm. constantly repackage it through these ever increasingly complicated algorithms. Uh, is how we're going to get our stories. I hate and that. And that's not creative. No. That is antithetical to art. Art is art is an expression. Mm. Art is an attempt to convey to others what you think and mm. feel and believe so that, the, they, that they don't understand, and the only way that you can convey that is to create something mm. to illustrate it, whether you do it through music or writing or movies or whatever you do. That's an attempt to communicate something deeply personal, mm. even if you're doing it in a very mainstream way. Even mm. if even if I'm communicating something personal, what are you communicating? Well, I'd really love it if Batman and Superman fought. Yeah. Like, okay, that's <laughs> but, fair. But that's, if that's your passion, go that's, for that's it. That's uh, totally fair. It's, I'm not the, necessarily uh, compelling to everybody, but it's fair. But if a computer starts doing it, and I mean that on a micro level, not like the whole story, but even just the performances they're in, we're missing something. So I think it's the, a slippery slope, and I think that so the, the it, real, there's a lot of serious questions. We need to keep asking about the, this, the real, and we need to start uh, having some... I'm waiting for some legis- uh, legislation. I'm waiting for some lawsuit yeah. uh, to sort of set some parameters here, because I think it's what it's going to take. I um, So the real ethic we're talking about here is, mm. uh, yes, we need to consider uh, the will of the actor, the dead mm. actor, yeah. uh, the role their estate plays in these digital yeah. recreations of their likeness. But more than that, we need to start asking why studios feel compelled to do this all the time. Yeah. And it's because they need to uh, take the easy way out. You know, it's they a- need to cast an actor that you already have affection for. They're not going to try. Yeah. To give you something original and striking with new interesting art. Yeah. They're going to. They're not going to create new fans. They're going to leach off of. Well, them. and that's and that's why you look at what they look at. Look at what they okay. Just to go back to Harold Ramis, just because it's mm. a it's a clear example here. They they created a digital Harold Ramis. Why do we create a digital Harold Ramis? Well, was there a role in a movie that we looked around and we couldn't find the right actor for? And damn it, the only actor who could have really done this right, according to the storytellers, was Harold Ramis. No, uh, we wrote a story specifically so that we could put Harold Ramis in it. Mm. Uh, because he's part of this franchise, and that's going to hit some people in the feels. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that every single aspect of Ghostbusters Afterlife was cynical. I'm sure some people really cared about parts of it. Oh, no, every I, aspect is cynical. I, I, I can't speak for every single person involved in the production, right. and I don't want to draw everybody with that exact oh. same very large brush. Okay. I don't. I think that's unfair, but I think it's over. I think it's okay to say that the overall enterprise is somewhat cynical, but I'm sure people, some people really cared about it. But it's only being used for these purposes. Mm. The, at the very least, with the Sky Cats in the World of Tomorrow, they cast Lawrence uh, uh, Lawrence Olivier Lawrence Olivier as a new character. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> you weren't bang, it's like oh there he is as yeah. Hamlet again. Like, it's like yeah, I wanted to do Wuthering Heights too, but damn it, Olivier was dead and he was the best Heathcliff. So well, I needed him back in order to bring the audience back into the theater. Reminded like, no. of a, a, a Monty Python bit where um, they interview a filmmaker who cast Marilyn Monroe after she was dead. Oh. It's like, uh, oh yeah, so, but she's dead. She died years ago. Well, yeah, but we have her like, you know, falling out of closets and laying around. Like they're just like pushing a corpse around. Jesus Christ. And they say, uh, that is dark. Yeah, it's no. It's anyone would die that long ago when that when that's no. That, that, that's got just done in like like the that is pushing early eighties or something. Holy crap. Um, and uh, yeah, they say, well, surely Ms. Monroe was cremated. Well, we had to use another actress from some of the more visible shots. Another actress? Well, a dead actress. <laughs> but she's in every shot. She's in ashtrays and in fire grates. But like, again, that, that sketch is lampooning how cynical that is. Yeah. 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 Try, trying yeah. to cash it. And cashing in on an actor's name isn't as big business now mm-hmm. as it was several decades ago. Mm-hmm. People go to see a Spider-Man movie, not because it's... They're not going to see a Tom Holland movie. No, they're going, they're to, going see to see a Spider-Man, Spider-Man yeah. movie. We want to see Spider-Man. Um, so yeah, the actual actor is a less. little less significant. But uh, I just don't understand why we're so against recasting. Mm. Like you're telling me, I realize that we hadn't well, recast Luke Skywalker yet. However, you're telling me that in the entire world, there's no one else who could be a decent Luke Skywalker. No one. Mm. I know everyone looks at Sebastian Stan and says he looks a lot like Luke Skywalker and just cast Sebastian Stan, which I'd be fine with. But throw that out there. Like, seriously, no one? You're telling me we found a perfectly good Sir Alec Guinness. We didn't need to de-age Alec Guinness. Ewan McGregor is a great Obi-Wan. One of of the better examples of this was, uh, it's actually a film I don't really like, but uh, it's Doctor Sleep. Uh, oh yeah, there which you go. was uh, it was a follow up to, to the book The Shining, but they also tried to make it a follow up to the movie The Shining. It, it's it's so trying it's to do both. It's it's trying to find the common ground between the two. And, things. and then and then there's fucking vampires. Who knows? Uh, but <laughs> they're vampires who eat psychic energy. Please, yeah. kind of uh, sorry that they store in thermoses. It's they so do. fucking stupid. Well, uh, but, where else are you gonna keep? It? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Better go down to Target and pick up some spiritual energy thermoses. What are you gonna What are you, what are you gonna do? Just keep it in a mug? Like you gotta. <laughs> <laughs> get a thermos you want something with a lid how, how about don't have that part of the story and not have vampires in it at all and just have it be about a guy with an alcoholic father who's trying to recover that's an interesting enough story you also don't need psychic suitcases and all this other bizarre crap uh, anyway but in that movie uh, they wanted to uh, sort of evoke a lot of the actors who were in the Stanley Kubrick film yeah many of whom are no longer uh, with us yeah, or, or wouldn't be involved mm. Uh, yeah, like they're not going to cast Jack Nicholson now to play him yeah. as he looked in 1980. So yeah. they cast uh, Henry Thomas to 
imitate Jack Nicholson and make him look kind of like Jack Nicholson. And you know yeah. what? He does a good, fine job. He's an amazing he's Jack only, Nicholson. He's only in one scene, but he does a fine job. He's, uh, he, people do not talk about how much of a chameleon Henry Thomas is. If you ever get to see Psycho 4, the beginning, where he plays a young oh, Anthony young Perkins, Tony Perkins, he's yeah. perfect. He's a really good actor. He's amazing uh, in that I, film. I forgot the name of the actress who played the young uh, Shelley Duvall, but... Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's um, uh, but, uh, she, but she did a really good job in sort of imitating yeah. Shelley Duvall. Yeah, they and, really they well put her in the cast. same costume, so she looks kind and of the same. And you got... Mantis to play Scatman yeah, Crawler. Carl, Carl Lumley is the actor's name. <laughs> yeah, Mantis, Mantis. Mantis played the Scatman Crawler's role. Yeah, and he's uh, great. It's really and, good. And he's fine. It's so. really good casting, a little bit of makeup, maybe a little bit of CGI touch up. I don't know, but it's very minimal. You're asking the actors but, to do the work. But you're looking at an actor yeah. doing their job, and yeah. I think that's fine. I think it looks great. You totally get away with it. We should move on with some other letters because that's, that's. And it, hopefully that was an interesting conversation. We know it was a long one for this mm. show, but. Um, that's a big camera. There's there's a lot to talk about, a, and we need to have this conversation. Going on. Um, yeah. uh, let's go to the next letter. Let's do it. Uh, this is a letter from Adelaide. Hello, Adelaide. Hi, um, Adelaide. Hello, Bibbs and Whitney. As mm. mentioned on last week's letters episode, someone inside the uh, someone inside the conversation with both of you started uh, started watching cooking shows, mm. and that got me thinking about food in movies. Mm. I'm a big fan of YouTube channels like Cocktail Chemistry and. Binging with Babish that specifically go out of their way to recreate food from film. Mm. And that got me really interested in the form. Uh, especially directors like Wes Anderson and Hayao Miyazaki, who go out of their way to make food look as delicious as possible. Yeah. My question for you both is, if there's any specific uh, food from films that you always wanted to eat, uh, is there a food from film that you always wanted to eat that looked really, really delicious? Sincerely, Adelaide. Oh, there's a ton. Oh, my God. Uh, I think the number one thing for me, and I know I... I could make it, but it's incredibly complicated to do it right, and I don't think I could do it the way they do it in the movie. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a movie called Big Night. <laughs> I, this is this was Big Night and Tom Popo. Yeah, are like the two big food movies yeah. that are constantly brought up when food movies are brought. They're up. Inc- it's they're, Big Night is a wonder. I, I I didn't. I still haven't seen Tom Popo. Actually, I know I need to get to. Oh, it. well, it's great. Uh, yeah. But Big Night was also was an Italian American. It was a big kind of formative movie for me. It really, you know, it's about Italian Americans or about Italian immigrants rather. Um, and uh, they come to America and they've started a, a authentic Italian restaurant in like the 1930s, I think. Mm. Um, and uh, they're literally across the street from an Italian restaurant that has Americanized all the cuisine. Mm. And it's not as they, 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 they don't respect that. Um, uh, but their business is failing because they're not uh, they're, they're a little too. Uh, the, the, the customers that they're getting don't appreciate what they're getting. Uh, so they're going to have a big party. They've been promised that a celebrity, uh, specifically uh, the performer Louis Prima, is going to come and it's going to be a big uh, uh, news opportunity. It'll be in the papers and it'll be great for their big thing. Publicity for their restaurant and they'll get people in. So the whole movie is about them planning for one big night, this gigantic meal. They're inviting Mm -hmm. all of their friends, uh, some of their enemies, and it's just an intimate... Wonderful ensemble mm. character piece, fantastic cast, and then the timpano happens. They make <laughs> this dish, and look it up because it just looks like this incredibly, just the most decadent. Imagine, uh, imagine like a pie shell, but it's like six inches tall. A wedding cake, a pie. wedding cake pie, and it's full of every savory this, Italian thing you yeah, like. Just this big mixture of Italian foods. And they bake it together so you can slice it like a cake. Yeah, and it's crispy, but it's also mm. like, you know, it's actually moist inside. God damn it. I just do not, I have never had the guts to <laughs> try and make that. I mm. just, I, I'm waiting for one day. I'll go to a fancy enough restaurant, but I'll be on the menu and I can actually have that. I've never had that. <laughs> what about you? Yeah. Um, 
Never had a timpano. I'd, I'd be interested to try if sure. I can make a vegetarian version. Um, uh, Tom Popo is interesting because there's a lot of really. It makes me want ramen. Yeah. It's the the movie is about. Uh, it's it's this kind of spoof of westerns where this traveling cowboy with a cowboy hat wanders through town to help a, a a woman in trouble, but her trouble is not that she's being besieged by bandits. She just mm. can't get her ramen restaurant off the ground. And he happens to know some uh, key elements to making ramen, and they assemble this like team that knows all about making ramen. It's all about making this perfect bowl of ramen, and ramen is just fast food. Uh, so wow. that's, that's kind of the gag, and it, that it's supposed to be this like kind of it's convenient. It's, it's more a, like you uh, can do it really nicely. You can do it really nicely. And there's but a million different variations. It's, it's set up like like trying to open the world's best good burger. You know, it's <laughs> it's like a fast food joint. Uh, and, and, and there's a lot of asides in Tom Popo where we get to sort of see these little vignettes where, which has nothing to do with the main characters, uh, where people discuss food. Uh, you know, there's, a, 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 an etiquette class where a teacher is trying to teach young ladies how to, how to eat properly. And there's a guy over in the corner just eating really loudly and picking up food with his hands and being as rude and noisy as possible. And he ends up ruining the, me- the meal because everybody else succumbs to that urge and they all start <laughs> eating messy as well. Uh, there's a, a notable uh, sex scene where these two uh, you know, attractive young people are making love, but they're also like incorporating food. And there's this really sexy scene where they pass an egg yolk between their mouths without breaking it. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's nothing in that in that film that made me like super hungry though, other oh, than making me want some. I ramen. cannot. I cannot. Mm. watch people eat ramen without eating it. There's an anime series, I didn't see all of it, and it's based on a manga, mm. called Ms. Koizumi Loves Ramen Noodles. Okay. And it is about uh, a young woman, and she's, I think she's in high school, uh, and she's completely stone-faced, completely detached, isolated from her, her fellow students, uh, but her great passion is ramen noodles. Mm. And she knows where all the great ramen noodles you can get are. And she knows all the different reasons and when you're eating this kind of ramen noodle you want to wait and eat everything but the noodles so the noodles soak up the most of the ramen last but you don't do that with every kind of ramen you only do with so it's like it's kind of educational okay. about ramen but it also really makes you want ramen <laughs> like a lot oh my god um i, I do like uh, films and shows about sort of the process of cooking yeah. just because you know, food is a little bit alien to me uh oh, yeah? just um you cook, I, but you I, cook, though. You've, you've made delicious things. You've made things for me before. Yeah, but I, I don't eat those things. I just cook them you and serve them. You don't eat them? Why not? Uh, or maybe being poisoned? Like, What's going on I here? just don't, don't want to eat them. That's all. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more interested in, in preparing and serving than I'm in, in eating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, when it comes to, like, food movies, I, I admire sort of the, the process of it, the the, mm. the etiquette and the setup and the way film, uh, that you know, uh, foods are put together. There's a, a scene at the end of Big Night, after the Big Night is over. Where they're just making an where, omelet. Yeah, where uh, Stanley Tucci, who plays one of the brothers, yeah. uh, makes an omelet on camera. One unbroken shot. Yep. Just breaks the eggs, cooks it, and eats it. And at the time, I thought, can they do that? <laughs> can, they, can they, like, make the food they eat on camera? Like, yeah. It, it's like, yeah. It's <laughs> a couple of eggs, a little bit of olive oil and salt in a pan. That's all they do. It's no, really... no, I mean, it's making omelet. I, I can make yeah. one of those. It's the easiest thing in the world, yeah. but uh, it's it's struck me as like this revolutionary thing because you never <laughs> see people like actually preparing food and eating it on camera. Well, it's outside, outside of like cooking shows. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, it's it's rare that I'll I'll watch a movie and like want to taste something. It's when wow. I see something. Jiro kind dreams of... of sushi made did that for me. Man. <laughs> That's a great documentary about one of the greatest yeah. sushi restaurants in the world. Yeah, from, I want sushi so bad. Just from the director of that. the Lazarus Effect. Weird. <laughs> Jiro dreams of sushi. One of the best food documentaries ever. It's really weird. Uh, it, it's when I see like fictional foods that I get a little interested. Like, what does mm. that taste like? Mm. Like what what like what the paste from Hook. Well, the paste from Hook looks like cake frosting, yeah, but you know, I, I read read about something like the Pen Galactic Gargle Blaster. It's like having your mm. brain smashed out with a a gold brick wrapped in a slice of lemon. It's like, yeah. oh, that sounds interesting. Like you know, you know what actually always looked really good to me, and mm. I have no idea what it was. Probably just wax. Uh, was uh, if you recall in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, mm. there's actually not a lot in that Chocolate Factory that looks that delicious. Like you ever <laughs> notice that in the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the river of chocolate just looks gross. Because well, it is <laughs> it just looks like water. chocolate. It's just water that's been dyed dark yeah. brown. Like it's not really good looking. Like looks like the, sewage runoff. It's yeah, awful. It's, <laughs> yeah, that that part I never really bought. But that room full of where everything is made out of candy, that like was full of some cool mm. stuff. And my favorite thing in that was it was like a. Um, was it the little nectar cup? It's a yeah. nectar cup. Yeah. It's a, it's a flower uh, on top of like a little, you know, a, a, a few other petals that look a little bit like a saucer. And he just picks that up and he drinks from the flower mm-hmm. as though it had delicious nectar inside it. So and then he like, takes a bite out of the cup. Yeah. And I bet that's amazing. I like to think it tastes like butterscotch. It's like a, oh, I, 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 it's like a wafer with honeysuckle flavor. Did you ever mm. eat honeysuckles when you were No, a kid? I don't think I did. You pick those little orange flowers, you pull the, the stamen out, and you, you lick it. We used to eat pumpkin like... flowers, but that's that's uh, uh, that's a savory thing. You just fry yeah, them up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's like you incorporate in cuisine. You didn't yeah. just pick pick a honeysuckle and suck no, the honey? No. Okay. Didn't you, know you could you, do that. You, you missed out. It's a big, I, uh, for, and now it's too late. Formative childhood experience. Now they're gone. The honeysuckles still exist. No, but my extinct. childhood is gone. <laughs> well, you can still eat a honeysuckle. I'll never be young again. <laughs> we should move on. All right. We should move on. We have time for a few more letters. All right. Um, here is a letter from uh, Jeremy. Hello, Jeremy. Hey, Jeremy. Um, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Uh, in your last letters episode, mm. a listener had written in and brought up how irritating it was to them when movies used bad Photoshop, and you had asked if there are other small things that irritate people when watching movies. Ah, yes. For me, actors, quote, playing instruments when it's clear that they don't drive me up the wall. Yeah. Piano is the easiest instrument to fake. You, yeah, you just don't film just, their just, hands. Just don't yeah. film their hands. Yeah, you can get away with it. But I can always tell when they use creative editing to hide the fact that someone isn't really playing at all. Show a wide shot from uh, the side or across the uh, from the front of the piano and cut mm-hmm. to a close-up of the hands actually playing. And since the only biggest stalker of stars would likely be able to recognize that those uh, are not actually the star's hands, mm-hmm. most can get away with it. Right. Until it's clear that the piano music is using octaves that the actor's hands are nowhere near during the long shots. <laughs> it's like they're they're playing up top and oh, yeah, yeah, then yeah. low notes are gone on the soundtrack. Yeah. Um, but the one instrument... Uh, the one instrument family that drives me up the wall is bowed strings. Bowed I've played strings? I've played viola ah. since I was in oh, grade bowed, seven. Oh, bowed, B-O-W-E-D. Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that okay. Stringed instruments you play with a bow. I get it now. Yeah. Uh, I've played viola since I was in grade seven. I'm 37 now. And you can always tell when someone is comfortable holding a violin or a cello, not from how they hold the external instrument, but from the bow. Uh, sure, you can spot rookie fingering on the fingerboard. But you can usually see the resistance that uh, pressure of the bow on the strings creates as you draw notes from the strings. Mm. It was the biggest reason why, when I first watched Mastered Commander, The Far Side of the World, I loathed the movie. Oh, no! It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, according to trivia websites, Bettany and Crow, Paul Bettany and Russell Crowe play in that movie, yeah. uh, learned how to play cello and violin. 
but it's clear that Crow is faking his scene. Luckily, I re- revisited the movie after an episode where you two had raved about it, and now I think the movie is awesome. Ah. I just have to skip that scene right. because the musician in me is ready to throw my shoe at the TV and the bad do it. faking they are doing. Yeah, that'd do it. Anyway, uh, you asked, and it's a rant that I've been fighting for a while now. Hi, Luca. Sincerely, Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. And Luca says hi back, by the way. And that's a good point. And it actually raises a good point, which is something yeah, that... Um, oh, and he says, oh, it, uh, if, oh, yes. if you don't know what a viola is, uh, and I say that because I spend as much time explaining that is not a violin that I'm actually <laughs> playing, it's the alto voice of the string veil. I, I know what yeah. a, a viola is. Uh, um, violin, soprano, viola, uh, alto, cello, tenor, double bass. Well, it's bass. It is. Um, but what, what, what's, what's being brought up here is something that is... A very real concern, but it's not something that every filmmaker has the luxury mm. of, of learning of how to play an instrument. Well, yeah. I, I remember I think I've talked about this before, but um, there's uh, whenever you run into when, when you depict anything on camera, mm. you want to try to be genuine, but sometimes you have to pick your battles, and this can only be so genuine. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the right location for this, or the actor didn't have enough time to learn this skill properly, and we have mm-hmm. to shoot around it a little bit. Um, because the damn thing just needs to get made. We don't have forever here, and that's a practical concern. And it sucks when it takes people out of the movie, and I guarantee you almost any filmmaker would be annoyed, be like, oh, I'm sorry, that's not obviously what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember um, uh, listening to the commentary track, one of my favorite commentary tracks, for Finding Nemo, just absolutely wonderfully in-depth commentary track. Mm-hmm. And in the thing for Finding Nemo, there's a bit where they talk about all of the fish who are in the fish tank in the dentist's office. And they're constantly talking about dentist stuff, uh-huh. like different drills that he's using or different techniques or different, like, uh, you know, this Just is an abscessed tooth so, or whatever. Sort of like color dialogue that the, the fish yeah. over here. Yeah. And they knew that 99.9% of the audience won't care if something they, those fish say about dentistry is wrong. Hmm. But they also knew that there's going to be one fucking <laughs> dentist who's going to be completely taken out of the experience if that's wrong. And so they had, because it's animation, because it's Disney, they had time, they had the luxury and the, 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 the care to actually consult dentists and make sure every single fucking thing about dentistry hmm. in that movie is spot on. I don't know that from experience. I just know that that's what I've been told. Uh, one of my favorite things in movies is shop talk. Yeah. Like, even if it's complete jargon to me, I, you can kind of sense when it's authentic, or at least trying to sound authentic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, when they get a detail wrong, it can drive you a little crazy. Um, yeah. can't, can't comment too much on it, like my opinions of the film, but there is a film called Inglorious Bastards. Oh, yeah. Uh, made by a man who employs me, so I can't talk about the movie professionally right. or, but th- there's a Subjectively, scene yeah. there's a scene in the movie uh, that takes place in a projection booth i'm also a projectionist so mm-hmm. um i noticed the details put into those scenes uh the film was set in the 1940s it's a 1940s projection booth you use fucking plastic reels in that projection booth in the 40s <laughs> that is wrong <laughs> they didn't have plastic reels in the 1940s well, they're not gonna they're, they're not gonna just throw silver nitrate in front of the camera it'll explode just use Aluminum reels. Just I don't want to talk about using silver nitrate film. I don't exactly, but you're, talking about, you're talking about the reel itself, not the, the, the actual. The film. reel, the actual, like the oh, actual the, physical reel the, that the film is wound oh, wow. onto. Okay, yeah, it's made of plastic. And okay, well, I never noticed that. Yeah, you wouldn't because yeah. you're not a projectionist. I'll tell you one thing. I was watching the movie. Uh, it's a Chris Rock film called Top Five, uh, which okay. is mostly quite good. Uh, it's a very earnest film. Uh, good chemistry between Chris Rock and um, Rosario Dawson. But the plot of the movie is she's interviewing Chris Rock. For an article, I thought it was a pretty good movie. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, But uh, she's interviewing; she's a reporter. She's interviewing Chris Rock for a movie he's got coming out today. Today's the day the movie came out, 
no, you would not be doing that. You'd be doing that interview a week ago or earlier so that the article could come out the day the movie came out. Also, he goes to a film junket where he has to like answer questions from a whole bunch of reporters the day the movie came out. I have never fucking seen that. No, that is not a no, no. thing. That, that's... At least a week ahead of time. Five days minimum ahead of time. Mm. They do not do junkets the day they came out. They're too busy because, doing other shit. Because the film's out. Why are yeah. you doing publicity now? No, yeah, like no one's going to get, any, no one's gonna get anything. Yeah, no one's going to get anything done in time. Like you might have a couple of straggling phoners for mm. the when the movie gets a wide release in a week if it's a small film. But like, no, you're done by that point. Mm. The one bit he might have done is like a, the radio show. Because like, hey everybody, for your oh, morning, yeah, like, for your morning uh, drive time, come see my movie tonight. Mm. That's a maybe. Everything else about that movie, and I know Chris Rock knows this. Chris Rock has been <laughs> making he's, he's movies. A big, for, he's a big movie star. He's a big <laughs> movie star. He's been making movies for a really, really long time, and I know that Chris Rock made the conscious decision to let that go hmm. because it makes the film more immediate. Everything's happening at once. The movie is coming out at once. Uh, there's all these interviews are happening at one time rather than spread it out over a long amount of time. Mm. You're going to have a film that takes place over one day. And the only people who are crying foul are the... The journalists. Are the yeah. journalists who will be writing about the movie and helping with publicity, which is kind of ironic. But uh, but nobody, none of the mainstream people in the audience are going to know or care. Mm. You pick your battles yeah, sometimes. Yeah. You just sometimes decide, I don't... That's not something I'm going to worry about today. Mm. Again, if if it sounds convincing enough, mm-hmm. it's convincing enough. Yeah, it doesn't have to be one hundred percent realistic. No, right? at some point you are expected as a member of the audience to be willing to meet the film or the TV mm-hmm. show or whatever halfway, and just be willing to say, "I'll let it slide." Mm-hmm. I'm willing to suspend my disbelief because we're telling a story here. Mm-hmm. It's like if you're telling a story to kids, and it's just you're telling like, "Okay, so once upon a time there was a guy who lived on a mountain." What kind? Uh, the tall kind anyway yeah well how many yaks are on this mountain that's not relevant to the story I want to know about the yaks <laughs> like at some point you just decide there are no yaks just moving on what was these two brothers what were they called what were the names yeah from Life of Brian exactly uh, I, I, look I don't know they're just they're these two servants okay they were called Simon and Adrian you said you didn't know <laughs> yeah and, I'm, and again I'm not accusing anyone of having that attitude my point is that at some point a filmmaker just has to make a choice yeah um, so, and I get it. I get pulled out of movies when I see something that's wrong with the film industry or both my parents were educators. So whenever a uh, movie or TV show is inaccurate about education, mm. I'm watching that show Abbott Elementary right now. Great show. Gets most of it right. Anytime they get something wrong, it's like a dagger in my eye. And I know they know better because I know the people involved actually like we're basing this on real life experiences. And I know they're just doing it for the sake of entertainment, but I know that wouldn't happen. No, um, <laughs> I know that's not right. I, I was really forgiving of a, a, a kind of middling horror film. I, mm. call, I think it was just called Porno. Um, oh, the one about uh, uh, like uh, conservative Christian kids in a movie theater. Yeah, they accidentally it's, it's, let out yeah. like a demon that was trapped in a porno movie. Yeah, that was shot in clearly like an actual rinky-dink little uh, yeah. movie theater. They got actual uniforms. They got actual those little lobby brooms they have to use. I've worked mm-hmm. worked in movie theaters my whole life. The details and the geography of the actual theater were 100% accurate. Yeah. So it's like, oh, this is really great. Is this movie good? I don't know. I'm too distracted (laughs) by how accurate it is. So it can work the other way as well, where something works so well that you're um, willing to cut the film a little slack for at least doing that much research, even if the story kind of sucks and the scares aren't that good and the acting is pretty bad. 
Anyway, but we, we got into the weeds on that. I think we have time for one more letter. Okay, one more letter. Yeah. Um, this is a letter from Dr. Nova. Uh, we hear from Dr. Nova. Okay. Yeah, hi, Dr. Nova. Uh, hello, Dr. Nova. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. Uh, I hate 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, snap! Uh, because the characters are distant and robotic and mm. seem to have given all their personality to the computer. My friend said that's the point of the movie. Uh, this is the movie that made me realize just how much I need to connect with characters. Sometimes mm. this means I'll stop watching a movie like The Invisible Man because abuse is hard. Yeah. Uh, what do you What do you care about most in movies? Characters or story? That's, that's an interesting question. Um, well, it could be uh, can be one or the other. Can well, it? I think uh, I think there's different ways of approaching this. I think I think some people do have a preference. Uh-huh. I think some people do care more about one thing or than another. I know some people who only care about action sequences and they don't care about plot, and that's mm. fine, I guess. Um, everyone's entitled to their opinion. Everyone's entitled to their taste. Um, when you're a film critic, you don't really have the luxury of having those kinds of hard preferences. Well, you, At you some can, point, you, you can need have to a preference, but well, your, your job is, is to s- try to figure out what the film is doing and then determine how well they're doing. Yeah, it. you're trying to appreciate every movie on its own level, which means you have to put in the effort to make sure that you can appreciate movies on multiple levels, even if it's not the way you normally would. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm 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 curious about this. this. Is this is I think this is a fair question. Like you and I will watch just about anything for. Film criticism purposes. Yes. But when the time comes and it doesn't come often enough, uh, where we can just sit down and watch something just for fun. Oh, I don't do that. Yeah, you say. Do. I, it doesn't happen often enough, but I know you do. What do you gravitate towards? What's what's mm. what are you most likely to put on at any given on any given night where it's just you mm. and maybe maybe Angie's I, there? I, or, I, I or, honest you know. I honestly can't answer that question anymore. Wow. I, I don't know. I don't know what I'd reach for. Okay. Uh, here here's something I I can do. Um, because I have a physical media collection, mm-hmm. I just open the cupboard, I look at the movies, and if you if you take a box off the shelf and mm-hmm. you just sort of look at it long enough, kind of start wanting to watch it, don't you? you? Start, <laughs> it's you like, sort of convince it's like I, I bought this. Why did I? Oh, oh yeah, there's that scene. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to watch this now. <laughs> you yeah. kind of can talk yourself into watching any kind of a movie. I think uh, when, uh, it, when it comes to something like 2001: A Space Odyssey, hmm. I understand why people are, are put off by its coldness. It's a cold film. Uh, it, it is a very cold film, and it's yeah. it's about more about its like philosophies and its visuals than it is about the human hmm. characters it's, and their little uh, like story arcs. It's more about the human species in a yeah, very the, the, distant so, aggregate than it is about the individual human. Yeah, so if yeah. if you want to think of that movie as uh, the main character being humanity, mm. maybe that's a, a way to sort of look at it and sort of connect on it at, mm-hmm. to it uh, on a character level. Yeah. Uh, Dave is not the main character of that movie. No, no, he's not. Uh, he is a character in that movie. Yeah, so is Hal. Hal. Hal is not the main character of that movie. He's the uh, antagonist, I guess. I, I suppose so. Um, if you like to watch movies that are about colorful characters that say witty things and have a lot of personality, mm-hmm. uh, heck, Ernst Lubitsch is right there. Uh, uh-huh. uh, there's... Um, Certain types of melodramatic storytelling that uh, a lot of audiences uh, prefer. That's the way film has just sort of found itself evolving over time. Yeah, we like know that, what we know the, what gets a reaction out of an type, audience, and yeah, we do that t- again. The types of stories we tend to tell, and the types of characters we put on film, and yeah. when things kind of deviate from that, they seem a little strange. Sometimes that's incredibly revolutionary and and Re- at least embracing, refreshing, embracing and new yeah. and refreshing. Yeah. Sometimes it's a bad experiment and it doesn't really work all that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you admire even admire it even if it didn't work very well. Sometimes it doesn't work uh, and then you realize twenty years later people started doing things kind of like it and mm-hmm. now it feels like it works great. Yeah, because and, it was ahead it, of its time. It works better yeah. now than it yeah. did back you know forty years ago. Yeah. 
so um, when it comes to characters or story, I guess if, in a very general sense, I guess I'll say characters. Okay. Um, I prefer like uh, you're thinking of some. Uh, like French New Wave films, mm-hmm. for instance. There's a lot of characters in those movies, and they go through a lot of, uh, you know, they have interesting conversations, and we get to know who they are, or like a, a Richard Linklater movie where there's just mm-hmm. a lot of talk and not a lot of story. I like those movies a lot, where we get to sort of know who these people are through what they say and the kinds of things they're interested in. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter what they do or what the arc is. We yeah. get to know them as people, and that's interesting enough. Interesting. Um I guess I have a different take on this mm. than you. I'm going to go backtrack a little bit. We're talking about 2001, and mm. I agree with everything you said. Uh, I will say this. If you're not a fan of 2001 A Space Odyssey, if it's a little too detached and not character-oriented enough for you, I'm going to recommend something that most people wouldn't do. Okay. But I would. See 2010, The Year We Make Contact. <laughs> the Peter Hyams film. Yeah, it's a sequel. It's, people don't talk about it very often. It's a sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey, and it's not bad. It's only like it's okay. bad. It's only bad in comparison. If two thousand and one never existed and all we had was two thousand and ten, it would be a perfectly well liked sci fi movie. Um, but two thousand and ten is about sort of the fallout from what happened after the events mm-hmm. of two thousand and one. Yeah, it's about the the salvage operation. Yeah. New astronauts go to follow the ship from two thousand one, and it's much more character oriented. It even goes way, way, way more conventionally told. Way more know. conventionally told. A bit more of a disaster movie kind of vibe. Not in a tawdry kind of way. Just more about focusing on these characters in a particular journey. It also does some sort of legwork to sort of explain not everything that happened in 2001 because they don't want to ruin it because it's supposed to be kind of left to your imagination, but they talk a little bit about what actually went wrong with Hal, and I think if that was unclear to you when you're watching the original movie, having it kind of elaborated upon in 2010 might even make 2001 a little stronger from a character perspective. Um, but in any case, I recommend checking it out sometime. It's a good movie. Not a great movie, perhaps, but a good movie. And maybe maybe that will help you enjoy 2001 more. Maybe it won't. I don't know. It's worth a shot. Anyway, um, regarding my own personal uh, uh, taste, and I was thinking about this because you were talking about... Um, I think when it's not so much... Char- I, I, I admire movies that are about characters. I admire movies that are about plots. Most movies are about both, to some degree or another. Um, and some movies are more than one or the other, and I like both types. Hmm. I think what I gravitate to more in movies is... Let, let, let me put it this way. Um, we've all heard a campfire story. Let's say we've all heard about Hook Hand. Yeah. About a pair of lovers who go to Lover's Bluff, and they're about to make out, and then they hear on the radio that there's an escaped killer with a hook for a hand, and they freak out, and as they drive away, uh, they hear a scream, and when they get home, they open the car door, and there's a hook hand there. Yeah. They ripped off the hook hand. Dro- drove off with the yeah. hook hand. Still, like, it was right there. Yeah. Was I just gave you the outline. I didn't tell the story very well. <laughs> what I gravitate towards are storytellers who tell their story, even if it's... A formulaic story, even if it's a character-driven story, but f- storytellers who tell their story with zeal. Mm-hmm. And there's a million different ways to do that. They don't have to do it the same way. I'm not asking for every filmmaker to be Sam Raimi. But I gravitate towards storytellers who clearly have a passion for what they're doing. Oftentimes that I end up watching a lot of exploitation cinema. Because say what you will about the work of Russ Meyer, he believes in it. <laughs> like, you know, and like, and you could say that about Scorsese, and you could say that about the Wachowskis, and you could say that about a, a hundred million different filmmakers. Nothing turns me off more in a movie than the general sense that we're just sort of doing this to do it. 
Mm-hmm. Like, people feel... Pa- and I get the sense that the story is being told with passion, whatever style that takes. That's what I gravitate towards. So for me, it's more almost the narrator right. <laughs> than it is the character. Yeah, um, so, and, uh, yeah. So it's more, more, it's more of a directorial yeah, I've, I've, vibe, I guess, that I, always, I gravitate towards. I always hate when a film feels like a product. Oh, yeah. I, I understand, you know, they com- are. commerce and art have, you know, yeah. lived together as long as there have been both Movies are things, expensive. But, People expect to make yeah. their money back, you know? It's, yeah. It's I, a fact of life. But, you know, un- unless you're making, you know, Tarnation, you're going to be yeah. spending some money on a movie. Yeah. And uh, see the movie Tarnation, by the Great way, movie. by Jonathan Coet. It's yeah. a really terrific film from 2002, I think. Um, but... Uh, it, it, so yeah, I understand. There's this commercial aspect to all of these movies. Yeah, it's back to life. But if it feels like a commercial, yeah. then I'm gonna kind of hate it a little bit. I'm yeah, you feel, don't want it to feel like I'm gonna feel yeah. exploited. Like I'm, I'm a walking wallet. I don't want to feel like a walking wallet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to feel like a, I'm engaging with an artist on some level. So that yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah. Uh, even if uh, it's a, a, the type of filmmaker who works really well in a commercial venue. Yeah. Uh, Shane Black or uh, you know. Mm. Uh, uh, the the directors of all the Avengers movies, the, the Russo oh, the, brothers, the Russo brothers, Russo brothers, um, um, yeah. If, if if they're doing something, you know, kind of uh, that is of the commercial mold, but it's also clearly like a little bit their own style. Yeah, James Gunn is another one of these. He can do yeah. something that's very commercial, but it's clearly James Gunn telling the story. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I wish he was less commercial, frankly. I, if, if, even if he's doing like the Suicide Squad, which has like gore and sex, and it's I like Curtis Peacemaker show is a bit more of the old James Gunn. I, I, yeah, I, yet, I, I haven't, haven't seen yeah. any of it. Um, Maybe we're checking out. I know a lot of my uh, my coworkers at Slash Film are very fond of the, the Peacemaker ah. show. Um, yeah, I haven't watched it. Um, I guess it's on HBO. Isn't HBO it? Max, yeah. Right. yeah I, I'll probably never see it. But, probably uh, not. Unless <laughs> um, it gets canceled after one season, then we'll have to. There you go. If it gets canceled really fast, uh, don't watch Peacemaker so I can watch it. That's... <laughs> If nobody watches it and it gets canceled real fast, then it'll be on my radar. Uh, if, nice. if it keeps on going and it's really popular, then I'll never watch it. Never um, that's that's the way my brain works. Um, anyway, it's late. I forgot the point I was getting at. The point is, my point is, yeah, I yeah. guess, I, I guess, sort of a, a perspective mm-hmm. is what I'm looking for okay. uh, when I'm watching a movie. Um, to ex- expand yeah. on what you were yeah, saying, yeah, I, I can see your point. Uh, the the idea that I'm I'm getting an idea. Yeah. from somebody and whether that's someone really th- wanted to tell the story whether yeah. then that's being told through the story or through the tone or through the characters mm-hmm. uh what i want is an idea being given to me what i yeah. want is a perspective of somebody being given to me uh and so i i understand that's a little frustrating because i'm not giving you a definitive answer right uh but that, no, yeah, i think that's a, a kind of what i'm looking so, for. sometimes you ask a question and it's a perfectly valid question mm-hmm. it's not an invalid question at all uh but it's also not necessarily the way whitney and i approach the topic mm. and so if we gave you just an answer like characters that would be a little disingenuous mm. so we have to sort of explain like where we're coming from and hopefully that was clear um i, I live in terror <laughs> of us like completely being yeah, the, like uh, inarticulate but um, yeah, the uh here's a good example i love tim burton's movie mars attacks yes it is uh, a gloriously punk rock chaotic film for a uh, really naughty 11 year old. It just likes to destroy. Uh, it's it's a, yeah, interested in destruction. Yeah. Who do you sympathize with in that movie? Who's the character? Now, the characters are all really broad and silly. You know, yeah. Jack Nicholson plays two different parts. Uh, but uh, Pam Greer's family. They're like, like, I guess they're the most human ones. Yeah. Pam Greer is sort of like the, the one human character. In yeah, all of that movie. Good, yeah. Everybody else is kind of a cartoon. Yeah. We also understand that all of these characters exist to be turned into brightly colored skeletons. We want to see them <laughs> die. I'm not going to... 
the point is to not attach yourself to them. The point is to kind of loathe them a little bit as yeah. just as pieces of humanity, which you kind of, by extension, well, also loathe. And that's what Mars Attacks is telling you you can do. This yeah. specific film is about this particular do you, do thing. Do you hate people? Here's monsters from space who will wreck it. <laughs> wreck all of humanity. They'll blow up buildings. The, all, all of those monuments that we've mm-hmm. you know, spent centuries building, mm-hmm. they're just going to bowl them over. Shoot, Literally. We shoot bombs at them and they inhale them like they're helium it's you know, there's nothing we can do to stop these little 11 year old monsters except for play slim whitman music that's our defense yeah our old man music yeah <laughs> music your dad listens to that's just gonna get rid of the margins uh and i love that movie I love it too. is it about characters no, no. is it about story no it's also not about story. Yeah, there's no story to speak of it's about the chaos mars, that's what i like here's the plot of mars attacks Mars attacks. <laughs> the, the, That's they, the plot. They gave away the plot in the title. <laughs> nothing else happens. With the exclamation Mars attacks, point. And then eventually that. they stop. Like, that's it. <laughs> nothing else happens. Anyway, um, anyway, that's it for We've Got Mail this week. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. A uh, bit long-winded this week, but I think we had some stuff to say. So yeah, I think not? it's I think it's okay. But in any case, if we didn't get your email, we apologize. We'll try to get to it next week. Um, feel free to email us again. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And again, our P.O. box is always open, and we love to receive, uh, you know, handwritten letters or typed out letters or anything at all. That's always just nice. It's nice to get mail, isn't it? That isn't just a bill. Uh, so, Whitney, what is our P.O. box? <laughs> yeah, uh, send it to Critically Acclaimed, Acclaimed Network, or you can send it to one of us individually uh, as the P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 900. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to get in touch with us other ways, we're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And of course, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed networks, where we, uh, sorry, network one, singular, uh, where we have uh, monthly hangouts with uh, some of our patrons. We also have a lot of exclusive shows, shows about uh, Batman and the Academy Awards. We're doing commentary track, I think, for Some Like It Hot this month. Um, So we have a lot going on over there. Thank you to all of our patrons, without whom our show would not exist. We're incredibly grateful to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, if you're not a patron yet and would like to join us, come on down. We have a giant back catalog of stuff for you the second you, uh, the second you enlist. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's it. Hmm. Right? We're good? So we're good. Awesome. We covered all our bases. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, oh, um, one, one more plug. Oh, okay, shoot. Before we shut off. Uh, Please do. Um, listen to All About Ovid. Uh, mm-hmm. That's our podcast podcast. Uh, where B. Peterson and I uh, talk about what we watch on Ovid. And we had a very long conversation with the filmmaker Lynn Sachs, uh, which was released in two parts. And the second part is now available. So you can listen to B. and I uh, gush over uh, the work of Lynn Sachs. She's uh, an, an experimental documentarian, I guess you'd call her. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of her films are on uh, uh, the, the streaming service Ovid, and uh, we recommend them all. They're really fantastic. And remember, All About Ovid is spelled with all O's. So that's O L L O B O U T O V I D. There you go. That's how, you know, that, that's how you're going to search for it. But please check it out. Uh, Whitney and B. Peterson are wonderful people, and uh, I'm really excited that you no, got well, such B. an amazing guest. B. Peterson's a wonderful person. I know you she, better than she, you. I know you better than you know yourself, Whitney. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, but I don't disagree. B. Peterson awesome. is awesome. So uh, anyway, thank you, everybody, for listening. Please check out All About Ava. Please don't forget. And uh, sincerely yours, Bibson Whitney. <laughs>
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 